Hey there, welcome to another episode of Teams at Work. My name is Daria Gutnick, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Bunch. I'm co-hosting the show with Anthony Rio, who is also my co-founder and our COO. We are on a mission to help anyone become a great leader. And together with our team, we're building an AI leadership coach to achieve exactly that. This podcast is for a new generation of leaders. Every episode, we talk to an inspiring guest who is running a high-performance team or a company to learn about their journey and what they do in their day-to-day to be an effective leader. So no matter if you're leading a team already or simply interested in becoming more effective at work, you can build your leadership skills by investing as little as two minutes a day with our AI leadership coach. If you're curious, download it for free on the Apple App Store today by simply searching Bunch Leadership Coach. Your journey starts with a quick assessment of what kind of leader you are today, and then you will receive personalized daily leadership tips to help you grow faster into the leader you want to become tomorrow. Our guest in today's episode is Josie Haynes, a longtime Silicon Valley engineering leader, recently termed executive coach, helping engineering leaders build happy, motivated, and inclusive high-performing teams. Her passion for computers started really early on at the age of five, and she has since blazed a trail through Silicon Valley, working at places like Sun Microsystems, Zynga, Apple, Tile, and she just really has a story to tell, and we're really excited to share that with you today. She is a passionate diversity, equity, inclusion leader, and understands what inclusive leadership really, truly, practically means. And she shares with us the top challenges engineering leaders are facing today while trying to improve on that. On top of that, Josie's episode is packed full of real experience and exciting stories, and we were really thrilled to finally have her on the show. Let's get right into it. Hey, Josie. Good morning. So cool to have you with us. Oh, it's so exciting to finally be on the podcast. I know, right? After a journey of almost two years and you're joining us at AMA Guest and contributing so much to our community, we finally made it. I'm super hyped about this conversation. And hey, Anthony. Hello. And yes, Josie, finally happy to have put this together and had this opportunity. Yes, so excited. I will jump right in. Um, to those that don't know Jossie, you'll learn a lot about her today. I'm super, super hyped. And I think before we dive into all the nitty gritty topics around tech leadership and get to learn from your insights of your long-standing career, I actually would like to go back. And we read somewhere in our research that your passion for computers started at the age of five. So tell us a little bit more about that and how that led you to become an engineer and then an engineering leader and now a tech leadership coach or an engineering leadership coach. Walk us a little bit through that that storyline. Absolutely. So yes, my passion for computers started when I was five years old. It was 1984 to date myself here. It was Christmas morning and I got this big box and it was a Commodore 64. For those of you who don't know, that was one of the first personal computers out there. And I fell in love. I was playing games on it and it was just magical. My brother was an electrical engineer and you know, he saw kind of my passion for Legos and he told my parents like, look, this is what you need to get Josie for Christmas. And 
it was amazing. And so, you know, I grew up tinkering with computers, uh, ended up building my own computer when I was in high school. And then my parents wanted me to be a doctor. And so I said, okay, I'm going to get a chemistry degree when I go to school. And so I did. However, my junior year, I realized something. One, I had zero interest in being a doctor. And two, I really did not want to go to grad school. (laughs) And the concept of going to med school and then more school for years was awful. And so I'm like, well, I better do something with this chemistry degree. And, you know, I'd always had a passion for computers. And I actually did take Computer Science 101 at Princeton. But the professor who taught it at the time had only ever taught grad students. So he didn't actually know how to teach an intro class. And the average was a 19 out of 120 across the entire class. The next semester, the dean of the department ended up having to take it over. So I tried taking other classes in college, but because I didn't have the foundation, I was like, I can't do this. So I stuck in the chemistry realm. But after college, I ended up getting a job with PricewaterhouseCoopers as a technical consultant. And they basically hired smart people from college and sent them to a three-month boot camp in Florida to learn how to code. And I picked it up insanely fast and loved it. Like the way they taught it, it made sense. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And then they flew me out here to California. So this was late 1999, the middle of the dot-com boom. And I fell in love. It was the culture, the climate, just the technology. I remember going to Mozilla's launch party, which was insane. (laughs) And I was like, I need to move out here. I have to be in this valley. I want to be creating the technology of the future. And then it goes from there, right? So worked in the valley at a couple of startups, then the economy crashed a little bit and I ended up at Sun actually working on the Java download infrastructure back when it was still Sun and not Oracle. I got fed up though with people asking me why I didn't have an undergrad degree in computer science. And so I decided to get my master's degree. And so I went to UC Santa Cruz to do that and actually worked at NetApp part-time while I did that. And, uh, Ended up then working full-time at NetApp after I graduated with my master's degree. And uh, for anybody listening, if it was now, I don't think I'd go back and get my master's degree. I think there's so many other online ways to learn this stuff. But back in 2005, there was a lot less options. And so I did. I'm happy I did it, but would not do it again. <laughs> Honestly, it was a lot of work and heartache, too. <laughs> And then ended up, like I said, at NetApp. But then it was really 2010 where my engineering career took off. So that's when I joined Zynga. So a number of my colleagues from NetApp had actually ended up at Zynga because Zynga is a gaming company. And at the time, they had hired a bunch of folks for passion about gaming, but they didn't have real engineers. And they were realizing that as they were building this company, they needed people who actually knew engineering principles and backgrounds to actually build a good team. Wait, how big were they then? Zynga was a thousand people when I was hired and we grew to 2000 within my first year. And the 2000 people, they still were kind of in the like nascent engineering culture stage. Wow, that's so interesting. Yeah, at a thousand people, it was so nascent. It was so, so nascent. And Because it had just quickly really grown from just like folks who were passionate about this. And actually, the day I joined Zynga, I will 
never forget this because it was the week we decided to take on Facebook. Just casually. Just casually. Know. Yeah, casually. As one does, wakes up on a Monday morning. Yeah. And so for those of you who don't know the history, Zynga is actually one of the main reasons Facebook became as successful as it did today. When Facebook first started, a huge reason it grew was gaming. And so this was when Facebook decided to start charging for purchases through their platform. And so Zynga, being the main gaming platform on Facebook, got very upset about this. And so the Zynga hierarchy said, we're just going to build our own social media network. So in two weeks, literally starting from the Monday I joined, as an entire company, we built Zynga.com, which was crazy. Like we actually somehow built a social network in two weeks. It was insanely hacked together, but it existed, right? And so yeah, that story kind of shares like my Zynga career. (laughs) Ended up at Apple working on Siri Music, Media, and Sports. So and worked on music during the development of the HomePod. And we added over 30 new features, including being able to say, Uh, know the other one if you want actually a different version of a song and worked on Siri on Apple TV and my team actually got a we got a technical Emmy for that integration uh, while I was leading the team which was super exciting and I also started Women at Siri which I was very proud of and um, has actually turned into Women in AI and Machine Learning after I left which is one of the largest uh, ERGs within Apple so super proud of that. When I left Apple, though, this was early 2018, I was burnt out. I was going through a lot of imposter syndrome, and I was really tired of how I was treated as a woman in tech. I call it death by a thousand paper cuts, right? I was also going through imposter syndrome. I thought I was an awful manager, like I failed. And even though like I left Apple and had people tell me like, oh my gosh, Josie, you're one of the best managers I ever worked with. I still had like this belief because I was just done. I was burnt out. I realized something though, after giving myself a break and really focusing on self-care, which is that, you know, technology was impacting my daily life so much more than when I had first started this. But yet technology is not fully addressing the needs of women and underrepresented minorities. You know, voice assistants are less accurate with women's voices and people with accents. Facial recognition software doesn't work as well for folks with darker skin tone. And, you know, there's so much bias in the underlying data that we're using. And so I decided I'm going to come back to tech under my roles. And that's how I ended up at Tile. So my boss, who I'd known at Zynga, was actually the VP of engineering at Tile, and he wanted me to join. And so I spoke to Tile CEO, CJ at the time, who was new, and I said to him, look, if you want me to join as your platform engineering director, I'm happy to, but I want to make sure that DEI is something that's important to you and it's not just lip service. And I also want to start a mentoring program because I had tried to start a mentoring program as part of Women in Siri, but the VP of Siri at the time didn't believe in mentoring. That's a big statement. (laughs) That is a big statement. Trust me. Who doesn't believe in mentoring? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. But uh, I think white men who don't need the support, those are the ones who don't believe in mentoring, (laughs) unfortunately. And so I said, all right, let's do this. And so I joined Tile and it was great. I was able to work on our DEI efforts. 
helped build a really inclusive culture I was super proud of and started that mentoring program and enabled seven folks to actually be able to change roles within Tile over a three-year period thanks to mentoring, which was amazing. And, you know, I realized though, and, you know, then I created my VP of engineering role. I basically said like, look, we're about to go into a growth period. We were in the middle of COVID. And I said, my boss who I'd known for 17 years and had been my boss on and off for 10, I was like, look, we work really well together, but he's much better at the technical side. And I'm much stronger at the leadership side. If we want to really grow successfully, let's promote him to CTO so he can focus on the larger architecture. Let's make me VP of engineering so I can focus on the people and processes and scale this organization. And so that's what we did. I ended up then growing the team from 29 to 55 and about four and a half months, and, you know, still kept our inclusive culture. I realized, though, at this point, I was super proud of this, but going back to my mission, which was really retaining women in tech, I wasn't going to be able to do that one company at a time. And so that is how I ended up becoming a coach, because I decided if we really want to retain women in tech, one of the big challenges is what I was saying, those death by a thousand paper cuts, right? And we need to be creating inclusive cultures. And the best place to be doing that is starting with the engineering leadership. We have the largest teams in the tech industry, and they tend to be the least diverse and inclusive. And so if I can empower engineering leaders to be building more inclusive and diverse teams, we can hopefully finally change the statistic that 56% of women are leaving after 10 to 20 years. Thank you so much, Jesse. This was amazing. And I think I've known your story a little bit, but this makes so much sense. And I think it's been the most, yeah, I think kind of logical or like the easiest to follow. And it showcases two things for me, how important a personal mission is and kind of figuring that out over the years and that it takes time to actually figure it out, but also how important the relationships are that you create over time because it seemed like you came back to the same manager a few times. And that kind of was like an ongoing story thread as well. So that's super, super interesting. That is one of the things that's really important, right? And, you know, related to like how women should thrive, it's, it's networking. We do not do it as much as the men do. And most, actually, all the jobs I've basically had in the last 10 years have been through my network. I literally don't, think I went through an interview process at Tile, actually. <laughs> now that I think about it, I had some casual conversations. but uh, And it's so important to be networking and building those relationships. And honestly, one of the reasons I thrived at Zynga was because I kept working for this manager who supported and helped me thrive. I have other colleagues who were there during the same period as me, who felt a lot less supported during their careers because, you know, gaming companies are not known to be supportive for women. Like the tech industry is low on women and gaming is very low on (laughs) women. So, yeah. No, it's an amazing story. And actually, it was really nice to hear the period of five to Apple because we had heard the Zynga to Apple to Tile story before, but it was nice to hear the real beginning of it. So. My question is actually this. You're at a stage now where you're giving back. You're working with engineering teams from the outside in. You're probably working with managers and aspiring leaders and the leaders of these departments directly. And quick shout out, you have a tip in the Bunch app with over a thousand saves in it, meaning a thousand managers and leaders have saved this tip, not just read it. It has many more reads and listens. 
but a thousand saves, actually a thousand one hundred or so. What does it mean? How does it feel to finally be able to sort of work with multiple organizations at once and give back to the industry the way you're doing it now? It's so amazing. And that's why I wanted to do this. It brings me such joy to just get off of a phone call with somebody and have them say, Josie, I got this promotion and I had no idea it was even coming, but I got it because I we worked together, right? Or, oh my gosh, thank you for this little piece of advice. Like I finally was able to get responses and feedback from my team when they didn't in the past, right? And it's just these little things that I see happening and it's just the combination of them. It's like, oh my gosh, we actually can change things. We actually can move the needle. And so for me, my biggest reward is seeing others grow. And so that's really why I want to work with engineering leaders to build these inclusive and high performing teams. Because, you know, I feel A lot of times in engineering leadership training, there's either the pure focus on the engineering technical side, right? Like, let's dig down on those Dora metrics and things like that, or we focus solely on the soft skill side, right? Which are very important as well. However, we need both, right? I I say, but, um, you know, there's the evolution of the Dora framework, which is the space framework, right? And that one I think is better because it actually takes into account, Dora is very focused on just engineering focused metrics. Space takes into account things like communication and things like, hey, it's not just the engineering side. But the one thing I think the space framework still misses a bit is inclusion, right? And so that's why my focus is really on, hey, how do we up-level the inclusion while building this high-performing team? Because inclusion is a part of productivity as well. Super good point. I want to hear more about this, actually. So I, when I, when you were walking through it, I was thinking maybe we should make spacey out of it with like an inclusion. <laughs> but um how is actually inclusion related to productivity? And I think you mentioned it so many times in our conversation previously that oftentimes like the ENI consultants or professionals, anyone who's passionate about the field, make that mistake of like assuming just if you actually help companies to become whatever is to become more inclusive, that isn't that already a good outcome? And of course it is, but oftentimes in order to really tie the knot on business deals and kind of convince highest stakeholders, C-suite, et cetera, we actually need to tie it back to performance and high performance effectiveness of teams, et cetera. So maybe tell us a little bit more about that link that I feel like you are really so good at tying. Yeah. So, you know, first of all, it's, let's go back to this whole quiet quitting thing that's going on. And this, this, this all ties in together, right? So with this whole quiet quitting concept, a lot of folks are saying, you know, is it about setting boundaries or is it about, you know, just checking out, right? And I feel like what's going on, unfortunately, is this is an inclusion problem, right? Like quiet quitting is an inclusion problem. Let's talk about that. If you're making your folks feel that they are not supported, they're going to not want to be put in 100% of their efforts, right? And guess what? It also means we still need to be setting boundaries to be inclusive, right? So I also don't want people to be like, hey, let's build these amazing, huge, you know, uh, teams that are so productive and you have to spend, you know, 120% of your time working, right? Like, no, like work-life balance is important. And guess what? It's been shown that when people work more than 40 hours a week, they're not going to actually deliver, 
right? And so what does inclusion have to do with productivity? Well, this goes back to the whole reason why people are quiet quitting. You know, it's people are not feeling included. They're not feeling valued. That, you know, autonomy, mastery, and purpose are the things that get people to actually feel motivated. And we're not focusing on those things. And we're also not focusing on creating a culture where everybody can truly speak up and belong, right? And, you know, the reason you want to hire for diversity is so you don't have groupthink. One of the big things of having a diverse team is that these folks are going to be bringing you a diverse set of topics and backgrounds. And for that, you want to ensure that you're creating a safe space for those ideas to be brought up and heard. And if you do that, then you're actually going to be creating better products that truly fulfill the needs of our diverse world. And here's an example of what I mean by that, right? So in April, I was flying to visit my dad and I was in the Tampa airport and I went to the bathroom and washed my hands as one normally does and put my hand under the soap dispenser and I got soap. But I noticed though, as there was a black woman down the way and she was struggling with the soap dispenser and she turns to the woman next to her and is like, I can't get soap. Could you just put your hand under there for me? And the woman did and got soap. And at that point, I realized something. This poor woman has had this happen so many times to her that she's realized these soap dispensers are not going to recognize her skin color. And it's easier if she just asks somebody else to put their hand under there. And I'm talking about a soap dispenser in an international airport in 2022. I'm not even talking about high tech here. I'm talking about day-to-day products that we're building. And so this is why inclusion is important because inclusion is going to be directly tied to the productivity of the folks and whether they feel like they can speak up and share their ideas. And so is there going to be somebody who's advocating for, hey, should we be testing that soap dispenser with multiple skin tones? One of our questions, and, and Josie, I think I've, I either heard that story from you. I must have been from you because I, I definitely remember it. And I remember it being as shocking and impactful as I just heard it from you now. I, you must have posted it somewhere or something because I remember you uh, telling us about it either on LinkedIn or something else. But we were going to ask exactly that. I mean, really specifically and precisely, not to reduce it to a definition, but just so it's clear. If you had to define inclusion and inclusive leadership, like what is it at its essence? Like, how would you define it? What is your perspective on it, actually? Yeah. So, you know, for me, inclusion is really creating a space where everybody feels that they can share their opinions and those can be valued and heard and they feel like they can contribute to the greater good and that they're very valued for that, right? And I think the creating the space is the really important part. And I think as leaders, when we're thinking about inclusive leadership, one of the challenges, and I think it's a challenge with any of these DEI-related topics, is that it's hard, right? It's We have to be vulnerable, and we're going to make mistakes along the way. And I call that the messy middle. And so I tell folks, don't be afraid of the messy middle. You have to get through it to get to a better place at the end. But that's how you build a more inclusive culture. 
what I always find very powerful is what are some examples of like really concretely behaviorally just not inclusive behaviors? Like what have you seen that is just truly harmful in this in this regard? So, you know, this goes back to what I was calling death by a thousand paper cuts. A lot of times, well, yes, I know some folks who have gone through some really traumatic events and I don't want to discount those. A lot of times, though, I say it's the sum of all of these little things that people just don't think about, right? Here's a prime story from my past. So when I worked at Apple, my program manager was a man. And we were tied at the hip together and we'd go into meetings all the time. Now, everyone assumed when we'd walk into a meeting together that he was the engineering manager and then I was the project manager to the point that I actually got an apology email at one point. And that's when I realized, how many times has this happened to me? You know, and so that's one example, but it's lots of those things. It's having ideas appropriated or being spoken over, right? Women are getting less technical and concrete feedback than men and get more feedback about how they behave and their personalities, right? You know, for every hundred men that are getting promoted to management, only 72 women are. And so, you know, it's all these little things that have a negative impact. And so, and biases happen, right? You know, we all have unconscious biases, like those processes in our brain that help us do this. It's not a bad thing, right? Like it's what actually helps us drive a car without having to stop down and think, okay, how is it that I actually drive this thing? And hey, it's what helped us survive back in the days when, uh, you know, lions and tigers were going to attack us. But we don't have lions and tigers coming and attacking us in uh, the tech industry. At least I hope not. (laughs) And uh, so we need to slow down our thinking in places where we know bias can have the biggest impact. And so especially when you're talking about hiring, feedback, promotions, That's when you really need to slow down and think about, hey, how can I slow down my thinking and how can I create processes that help reduce bias as much as possible? Right. And then larger on this DEI, like on the larger scope of all this, what are some of the challenges now that you're working with teams and leaders from multiple companies? What are some of the top challenges they face when it comes to sort of doing better and improving in this area? What are some of the resistance factors is I guess what I'm trying to get at? Yeah. I mean, I think there is still the just general, oh my gosh, is DEI a nice to have? I think especially potentially being headed into the recession that we might be, a lot of companies are, you know, cost cutting, doing layoffs potentially. And so I think right now, a lot of the challenges are, hey, how do we keep investing in these efforts? Right. But here's the thing. If you want to be hiring for diversity in the future, let's say you have a hiring freeze right now. You know what the most important thing for you to be doing is? Building that inclusive culture. Because if you have that set up, then it's going to be much more, much easier to hire the diverse talent. I think some of the other challenges, and this very much ties to inclusion, is the retention piece, right? Folks are concerned, you know, we're also in the middle of the great resignation, right? But I truly think a lot of retention challenges come back to some of the same 
inclusion challenges? You know, are we recognizing folks properly? Are we rewarding them? Are we motivating them? Are we setting up clear expectations? Are we giving them the constructive feedback they need to actually grow? And so, you know, these are all the areas that uh, I'm helping engineering leaders with. And here's the thing, going back to the cost thing, especially when it comes to retention, some research that the Capper Center did uh, called the Tech Lever Study was that uh, 37% of people leaving the tech industry are doing so due to unfairness. And 57% of those would have actually stayed if their companies had addressed their concerns. And so if you go with that 37% and take into the fact that it costs about $144,000 US dollars to replace somebody on average, and that that's actually low for an engineer, it's actually costing the tech industry $16 billion a year in inequity. So next time you don't want to fund that DEI effort, think about your retention and how much it's going to cost if you start losing some employees. That's a great stat and a great study. We'll have to link it also in the podcast as well, for sure, for anybody who wants to take a look at that. Then uh, last question on this thread, and then I'll pass it back over to Daria. I mean, just sort of concretely, after listening to this podcast, I may not even the head of the department, but sort of a a next tier down manager. What can I do today to level up in this regard? Let's say DE&I is not really a big focus of the organization, or maybe it's sort of a midterm focus or something like that. But what can I do today? You've already listed a couple areas that I can already focus on, but in terms of tactics, in terms of things I can do, what would be your recommendations? Absolutely. And so first, pick something. You know, I'm actually going to quickly review my three pillars to give you an overview of areas that you can look at into, but don't get overwhelmed, right? Pick something, start working on it. And like I said, you're going to hit that messy middle and that's okay. It's about imperfect daily action and is much better than not doing anything and just sitting back and being worried. And so I tell leaders, you know, and this is again, based on that research, there's three pillars we really need to be thinking about. The first one is those DEI practices. And that's the ones that companies tend to focus on, right? Inclusive hiring, you know, DEI metrics, things like that. But it's the two other pillars, which are the ones that really are the moving the needle for the retention piece. The second pillar is creating an inclusive culture, right? And any leader in tech is creating a culture, at least within their own team, that they can influence. And hopefully they can also influence the greater team that they belong. And so as a leader there, are you creating psychological safety? Are you being vulnerable? Are you taking the time to build trust with your team? Are you slowing down, you know, when you're giving folks feedback? All of these play into that inclusive culture piece. And I say working on empathy as the foundation for that is amazing. And empathy is something that we can actually practice each and every day. I, you know, I talk about that you can actually practice empathy when you're doing code reviews with your engineers. And then finally, the third pillar is those effective and fair management practices and principles. So many of us were promoted to leadership, myself included, with zero training, honestly, on how to be an effective and fair manager. And that is ultimately the big challenge because going back to it, we're the ones who are giving people feedback, determining who gets hired, who gets paid what, you know, who gets to work on which assignment. 
All of these are ripe for bias and potential unfairness if you don't know what you don't know, right? You know, and again, it's not that people are being intentional. I think sometimes there's this like, oh my gosh, if I admit I did this, like I'm a bad person. No, you know, like I'm sure I've done things that are non-inclusive before because I just didn't know. And so that's why I think one of the biggest things that you can do if you truly want to be an ally in this space is keep learning. Like this is a learning journey, not a one-time thing. You spoke about empathy as a foundation to build inclusive teams and become like a more effective and also inclusive leader. Can you tell us a little bit more about the empathetic management principles. I find that very interesting. And I think despite of being really interested in the field and kind of swimming in that content for a while, I actually, I think heard for the first time about it from you. And I, I am sure our listeners would benefit from knowing about that too. Yeah. So, you know, I think empathy is an amazing foundation and I love Brene Brown's research on this. So she says that there's really four main parts to empathy. And the first is perspective taking. And it's really about being able to see and feel the world through the eyes of others. And I think especially as leaders, we need to be able to take on the perspectives of our team members and our customers, right? I think Going back to that soap dispenser, are we taking the perspectives of all of the people who might eventually use our product, not just those who are like us? Then the next one is really staying out of judgment. So many times we can easily disregard somebody else's feelings or emotions, but guess what? Everyone's allowed to have those feelings and emotions. Like you can't judge you know, your team members' feelings. You need to accept them and help them process it. And that comes to the third piece, which is being able to recognize those emotions and remembering what it's like to feel that, you know, and being able to acknowledge what somebody else is feeling. And instead of just saying some vague, like sympathetic, oh, you know, it's going to get better, you can say something like, you know, I'm sorry, it sounds like you're feeling really upset about that. Can you tell me more? And that really is coming from a place of empathy. And that comes to that fourth piece, which is really the communication piece, right? It's being able to say things like, you're in a hard place, tell me more. And that final piece is so crucial. And finally, closing with Thank you for sharing, right? You want the person to feel safe to come back again. And, you know, I think this is something that we can apply tactically in things like code reviews, right? So going to code reviews and the reason I bring up code reviews is, you know, those four things people can think, okay, how do I really apply those, right? Code reviews are something we're doing every single day in the tech industry. So how do we apply it to a code review? Well, let's start from the person who's writing the code, right? At this point, you're excited. You just wrote this piece of code. Maybe you've been working on it for a few weeks and you just want to get on to that next thing. So you just want to get this thing committed and out the door. And so you've got a little impatience going potentially. But guess what? You have to have empathy for your code reviewers. You need to know they did not go on this same journey with you. 
And so you need to share with them, hey, what are the artifacts that are going to make this code review useful? Are there places this code might be a little confusing that I should make some comments ahead of time in the pull request? And hey, can I have empathy for my future colleagues who might join this company and want to review how this code was written? One of the things people don't realize is pull requests can be an amazing source of historical data and knowledge for new employees if they're written properly. And then from the code reviewer's perspective, you need to have empathy for the person who wrote the code, right? Assume, hey, we're all here to build an amazing product. I see so much tension sometimes in code reviews, and it's like, hey, let's take a step back. This isn't about being right or wrong. It's about producing the best code possible so that we're producing the best product possible and really coming at it from that mindset, And realizing that there's a negative bias to text in general, and since we're using a lot of times asynchronous pull request mechanisms, we need to be careful about the language we use. And so, so often I see statements start with, why did you or why didn't you? But let's say your spouse came up to you and said, why didn't you do the dishes? Like, you're going to be kind of pissed, right? It's like, well, I had things to do. Like, hold on, honey. If instead your spouse said to you, oh, sweetie, I noticed the dishes weren't done. Like, is there something up? Like, I'd be much more receptive to that piece of feedback. And the same thing comes in code reviews, right? So many times I see a, why is this variable still here? Anytime you start with that why, you're putting the other person in defensive. Yeah, super actionable feedback. Thank you so much for making it so easy to follow. And it's definitely applying. I think I was listening to you and thinking about all the reviews I do. So I think code reviews is definitely the place where it may be the hardest to imagine how to do this, right? But in the end, we're all reviewing work of others. And I think it applies just as much outside of code reviews in marketing, asset reviews, design reviews and other things. So super, super actionable. Last but not least, actually, I would love to know As someone who leads engineers, so scary, um, (laughs) as a female leader, (laughs) admitted here on the podcast, I'm very scared about this part of my role. Which advice do you have for us, actually, having been in that seat for a long time now? We all know engineering management is quite special, leading snowflakes and things. But uh, yeah, any any piece of advice for female engineering leaders are much appreciated. Or also uh, non-binary engineering leaders and everyone else who is not a cis white male. Yeah, first start networking. So I think I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I think it is so crucial to be networking. At the beginning of the summer, I actually hosted a barbecue for one of my communities that I'm in, Diversity, which is for women engineering leaders. And it was amazing. We had 20 women engineering leaders at my house. And the constant theme of conversation was, oh my gosh, we never do this. Why aren't we doing this more? And a lot of times, you know, they were like, oh, my gosh, we fall back on our commitments and all these things, but we don't do this enough. And it was very telling from just that one conversation. It's like, yes, we need to be networking more. It is crucial because guess what? The higher up you go, you're going to be the only one in the room and you're going to be lonely. You're going to need somebody to bounce ideas off of. So you just don't go insane in your head. And having that support system is crucial. Something else I think women do not talk about enough is we do not talk about how much we get paid. And uh, 
this goes to gender pay equity. We need to be, you know, the men are comparing their salaries, right? And I just saw the statistic in a hired survey that I believe 59% of women who get the same job at the same company are being paid less than men. And it's 2.5% less. And so one of the reasons that's happening is we're not talking about salaries between ourselves and we're not asking our male peers their salaries too. So start talking about how money, like it's okay. And I think there's a lot of cultural things about, oh my gosh, you, you shouldn't talk about this. But guess what? The men are talking about it. The other is, you know, build some resilience, right? And, and I want to be careful about this because I know sometimes, you know, if, if you're going through a lot of trauma, getting the advice like build resilience is not always very actionable, right? But so many times as women, we were raised to be the perfect little girl, right? A great book about this is Brave Not Perfect by uh, Rishma Shajani, who is the founder of Girls Who Code. And in it, she has this amazing story. These researchers gave lemonade to a group of middle school boys and girls, and they were in separate rooms. They gave the lemon and they said to the children, this is the tastiest lemonade you'll ever have. Let us know what you think. Now, what the children didn't know is that the researchers put salt in the lemonade. And what happened next was very fascinating. So the room of boys acted as you would expect. They took a sip of the lemonade and they said, ew, this is gross and didn't drink anymore. The room of girls, though, did something very interesting. They all drank the lemonade down and didn't say a single thing. Now, the researchers asked the girls afterwards, we know the lemonade was awful. Why didn't you say anything? The little girls said, we didn't want to hurt your feelings because you told us how amazing this lemonade was. So now imagine that little girl all grown up in her first meeting. Is she actually going to speak up when something comes up, right? And so I think a lot of us fall back to that little girl needing to be perfect and wanting to people please. And so the more that you can resist those tendencies and and really share your true authentic self, the better that we're going to be. And like I said, this is how we end up creating those amazing products that hopefully do fulfill the needs of our diverse world. I think it's so, so spot on. And thank you for sharing that story. We'll definitely link that in, in the show notes as well. Um, it's incredible how often I think despite of having kind of like all the hierarchical power as a founder of a company and, and being in the shoes of like, you're the decision maker. How can you not feel empowered? What is wrong with you? So often, I think, have I said in meetings like that are often all men. And like, I think we struggle with the same challenges that many do to keep up the balance and to keep up the ratio and second guessing like input I have and second guessing thoughts I have around topics because I feel like I'm not, te oh, I'm not technical enough. Like they know best. Of course, <laughs> look at them. They seem so smart. Um, how can I know this? So like, it's really, really mesmerizing how these biases play out in our own heads, whether we are on, so to say on the side of the minority or not, like it's just in all our heads, like we are all contributing to these and misbalances that we create in our society. So thank you so much for being so actionable with your advice and so um, helpful. And I know that Anthony has a very special uh, question for the end of conversations always. So I let him uh, ask you that, but thank you so much for 
really, really thoughtful and put together um, answers and guidance for us. Yeah, and I, I definitely um, I couldn't agree more. And I've uh, um, well, I know we have it in the the recording, but I think I just noted down that second book, Josie. So that's a uh, that's uh, I, I mean, all the stories and anecdotes you shared have just been super powerful from your story, but also from the stories you've been exposed to. The last question that we always love to wrap up with is, I think, is powerful in the sense that it sort of it puts you back at the beginning of your story and um, allows you to sort of like go back and take all the wisdom you've uh, you've gained and answer in a way that hopefully is relevant and helpful for other people who are at the beginning of their stories, right? So if you could go back in time to, we used to say even the beginning of sort of like your first leadership or management position, but I, I do think it's relevant for all professionals out there, particularly in the uh, the context of this conversation. If you could go back to the very beginning of your career, what advice would you give yourself, like top two pieces of advice or tips? Don't try to be perfect, right? I think my perfectionist tendencies definitely played in. Be be ask for that feedback, but ask for it, you know, in in ways that you get what you need. So instead of just saying, oh, how did I do? Say, hey, I'm giving this presentation tomorrow and I'm concerned about saying ums. Can you please give me feedback on that, right? Get feedback, especially since I said as women, we're getting less technical feedback on our deliverables, right? Like ask for those explicitly. And and finally, network, 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 right? I wish I was not, I had built my network starting from before because I do not think I would have gone through the burnout and imposter syndrome I did in 2018 if I had had the bigger network that I have today. And with that, I think we close one of the most actionable and helpful and amazingly um, inspiring conversations we've had for a long time. So thank you so much, Josie, for coming on. I can't believe it took us so long to do this. <laughs> and I'm so, so um, happy to um, count you part of our community, to be learning from you. I hope we will get more tips in the app that uh, break it all down, what we just learned today. And um, everyone who was listening, please um, do check out Jossie's work. Uh, we'll be linking her LinkedIn profile, of course, um, and, and any other links uh, that you share with Jossie that we should share. Um, but highly, highly recommend speaking with Jossie, learning from you, um, reaching out and, and push um, the train forward that calls or that uh, is called uh, building effective and inclusive teams. Really, really excited about the future. Thank you. Thank you, Jossie. Yeah, absolutely. And please have anybody who's listening, feel free to reach out and DM me on LinkedIn if you're interested in a, a free coaching session. So yeah. Ooh, nice offer. Thank you. <laughs> we'll, we'll definitely link the profile. All right. Um, thanks again. All right. It was great being here. Thanks for listening to Teams at Work. Let us know what your thoughts are on today's episode. You can find us on Twitter at Daria Gutnick and at Anthony A. Rio, or simply follow Bunch at Bunch underscore HQ. And don't forget, subscribe if you like the episode, because we always have interesting guests who join us and share valuable knowledge as well as actionable advice. Yeah, we're looking forward to hearing from you. Please do get in touch. At the beginning of the show, we did mention that we're building an AI leadership coach that helps you level up as a leader in just two minutes a day. Check us out on the Apple App Store and simply search Bunch Leadership Coach to find it, try it out, and let us know what you think. And that's a wrap. We are your hosts, Daria Gutnick and Anthony Rio, and we're excited to speak with you all soon. Till next time.